1: Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked. Spiked is free, we have no paywall, our articles are free, our podcasts are free, our videos are free, and we want to keep it that way so that our ideas can reach as wide an audience as possible. And it's only thanks to those of you who donate that we are able to do this, that we are able to have a packed website that is accessible to everyone. If you haven't yet donated and you'd like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Giving as little as £5 a month can really make a huge difference and help Spike to carry on doing what we're doing. So if you'd like to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Right, on with the show.
2: If you look at the means by which Trump was opposed within the intelligence agencies, the security state apparatus, the media totally jettisoning all of its standards – of even at least pretending to be impartial on certain things the way which nobody had any compunction about just declaring him to be a nazi a fascist but all these all this slew of tactics that were used to delegitimize and undermine trump i think was at its core born of irrationality
1: Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Michael Tracy. Michael is an independent journalist. He has written for The Wall Street Journal, The Nation, The New York Daily News and many others. He was one of very few journalists who treated this year's Black Lives Matter riots seriously. He travelled around the US to report on the destruction caused by the riots and asked why the mainstream media seemed so uninterested in these extraordinary disturbances. Michael has made a name for himself as a leftist who is critical of the left and the mistakes that it keeps on making – He has a keen following online, including, it seems, Donald Trump, who recently retweeted Michael's comment on the double standards of liberal observers who rage against Trump for refusing to accept the legitimacy of the election result, despite having behaved in a very similar way themselves in 2016. I talked to Michael about Trumpism, Biden, and the future of the progressive left. Michael, the first thing I wanted to ask you was about who won the election. I don't mean that in the sense of, was there fraud? Has Trump been done over? Uh, You know, it's pretty clear Biden got the popular vote and it's pretty clear he got the electoral college vote. But the thing that I think is incredibly striking about this election is the vote that Trump got. So this is a guy who has been demonised by the vast majority of the media for the past four years. There's been hysteria about him. He is literally Hitler. He's the worst person who ever lived. He's destroying the American Republic. And yet he gets 10 million more votes than last time, including among constituencies who are not supposed to vote for Donald Trump. So it strikes me that even though the left in quote marks won the election, they also seem to have lost quite a lot at the same time. I wonder what is your overview of the election and the result?
2: Well, I think that's A fruitful starting point to just observe that Donald Trump, despite having been cast as this existentially menacing threat, who was, it was claimed, meant that democracy itself was on the ballot. I mean, that was the cliche that was constantly invoked to describe this allegedly pressing need to defeat Trump at all costs. And you saw this used against him across the entire political spectrum. So liberals had their own. Anti Trump characterization having to do with how he flouted norms and how another four years of him would imperil democracy to this terribly shocking extent. And, and leftists did as well. Uh, and, and then there's a tension between the two in a way, but they could, they came to agree that a so called popular front or unified front was needed to dislodge Trump. So by extension, what they were alleging, and sometimes they don't even. Hedge on this point. They were alleging that Trump was a fascist on the order of 1930s occupied Europe, which, with a little bit of distance and hopefully with the benefit of some time and removed from the day to day manias of the Trump era, the sheer lunacy of that, I would (laughs) hope, would be a little bit better grasped. And Mm -hmm. maybe we can delve into how that distorted a whole field of perceptions as to the true meaning of. What has transpired these past few years, but nonetheless, that was the universal depiction of Trump within all precincts of establishment opinion. And like you mentioned, he's going to end up with maybe even more than 10 million hmm. votes that he received in 2016. Now, part of that is a product of hyper politicization across the populace in the United States. So Biden will have received an extraordinary amount of votes as well, which is almost amusing and ironic in a way because his opponents, meaning Trump conservative media portrayed him as like a walking corpse, which is, I mean, not that far off, but okay. So if that's your description of him, then for him to have gotten by far the most votes of any person in U S history calls into question some of your assumptions about his formidability. And in fact, one conclusion that I'm getting around to is that The wrongest analysis of this entire 2020 election cycle and American election cycles, unlike the UK and unlike other countries, which are a little bit more sane in this regard, go on for years upon years upon years. It's just never ending. There's no way that any kind of rational constructor of a polity would think that this was somehow viable for us to be obsessing about presidential elections two years in advance. and You can almost can't focus on anything else. But the wrongest analysts of the 2020 election cycle, I would think, are the left-wing media in their refusal to reckon with the defeat of Bernie Sanders, who represented the culmination of a five-year experiment for them to overtake a political party and stage, a, you know, a hostile takeover, so to say, the Democratic Party. They've never really reckoned with the repudiation that they faced in the in the vehicle of Biden, who they said. I mean, and, and people get angry at me for pointing these out. But you can go back to March. April, May, even when COVID was on the horizon, or not just on the horizon but in full force, at least in the US in that phase, and they were convinced, many of the leading lights of the you know left-wing media, that Biden just stood no chance at all of winning. And I always thought that was a fundamental misreading mm. of the electorate. 2018 midterms are key, and if you didn't fully grasp the implications of that outcome, I think you were out to lunch on 2020. Because 2018 midterms, people don't normally get that excited about midterm elections in the United States. There's no presidential race, obviously. And yet the 2018 midterm saw the highest turnout for any midterm election in the US since 1914. And that was a harbinger of just the astounding levels of politicization that were clearly working their way through the public in support of Trump and in opposition to Trump. And now we have estimates for 2020, ranging from it was the highest turnout election since either uh, 1908 or 1900, before there was women's suffrage. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that is something that really needs to be processed. And I think what a lot of the punditry undersold, and maybe even I I might have undersold to some degree, was the extent to which that cross-partisan politicization would also were down to the advantage Trump. I always thought that Trump was a relatively weak incumbent because he hadn't expanded his coalition sufficiently beyond what it was in 2016 in order to gain re-election. And clearly a lot of the elements of the electorate, which had been apathetic in 2016, maybe out of disaffection with Hillary, maybe out of disaffection with the eight years of Barack Obama, it seemed likely to me that they were going to just gravitate back into the the Democratic coalition almost out of instinct this time. But that really wasn't quite what happened. I mean, if you look at the key urban areas that dropped off in 2016 for Hillary Clinton, like Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Detroit, the fact that the black vote dropped off in those three cities Hmm. was probably the principal reason why Hillary Clinton lost those three states to Trump and made Trump president. But turnout didn't go up, really. In those three cities in 2020. In fact, Trump gained a larger share of the vote in Philadelphia than he did in 2016. What happened was this tsunami of politicization really crested the most heavily in these growing suburban population centers, like in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Montgomery County, for example, where I spent some time before the election, Oakland County, Michigan, the Atlanta suburbs, Gwinnett County, And Cobb County, which had been historically Republican, now are the main points of leverage within Democratic governing coalition. That's why when you phrase the question as who won the election, I like to think of it more in terms of everybody was proven wrong in one way or another this election, (laughs) which is kind of a more satisfying way to look at it to me, who generally finds a lot of people to be wrong about stuff.
1: Yes, absolutely. And uh, I wanted to ask you about the wrongness, the wrongness of people in relation to this election in terms of the pollsters, the predictions that were made, the pundits, lots of people got stuff wrong. And I particularly want to focus on the liberal media and the left-wing media and how wrong they were, because I find this incredibly interesting. And If they had any sense, they would have a reckoning with themselves after this election, not only because they got things wrong, but also because there is clearly a significant section of American society that lies completely outside of their purview, which is not beholden to their prejudices or their ideas or their eccentric ideologies, you know, millions upon millions of people who did not do as they were supposed to and reject this evil Nazi who had taken over American society. So how do you explain that gaping, chasm-sized distance between how sections of the left understand what is happening in America and what is it, what is actually happening? Do they just have no connection with Ordinary voters, particularly working class voters, does that explain why they made these predictions, have been promoting these ideologies, and none of it had any bearing on the reality of the situation?
2: Well, you know, I ran some data over the weekend from Southern California, Los Angeles County, which is not competitive in terms of the national outcome. Everybody always knows at least now that the Democrat is going to win California, and it's hardly even contested. But there is some very there's some interesting uh, data in there. And in particular, I looked at this city in Los Angeles County called Commerce, California, kind of a glum name for a city, (laughs) but it's 95% Hispanic. It's not a huge city granted, but you see some of these trends replicated elsewhere throughout Southern California and also other parts of the country. Trump in this 95% Hispanic city gained around a third more total votes than he did in 2016. And Biden, his vote total decreased by around a third compared to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Now, that's not an event, which is at all going to be explicable by a reference to the main thesis of the Trump years that have been put forward in these organs of elite consensus. Yeah. If your all-explanatory postulation about the meaning of Trump is this kind of racially reductionist attitude where white supremacy is always the be all end all determinator of political attitudes, then how do you, how do you explain that one? Right? You can't. And so I think it really emphasizes to me that the function of the paranoia that was projected at Trump, this elite neuroticism about supposedly his, cataclysmic dictatorial aspirations was never about accurately describing American society or even Trump himself. And just to be clear, Trump clearly eggs on a lot of this paranoia by unleashing his own culture war mm-hmm. bromides frequently. But it was always about enforcing conformity. It was always about an in-group signaling mechanism within these elite precincts. It was never actually about delving into the true nature of an evolving American electorate. So, of course, that's going to produce this gaping chasm that they're going to have a difficult time reconciling themselves to. And, you know, a lot of this, I feel, is going to be swept under the rug because ultimately, as you pointed out, which is sort of a trivially obvious thing to know, but still significant is that Trump lost the election. Mm. So they're not going to have the incentive to uh, come to grips with their enormous onslaught of faulty analysis that was so, so dominant over the past four years. So, I mean, I only see that chasm probably growing. Mm. And another key point is that because, you know, the, the people who are most susceptible to this elite paranoid characterization of Trump tend to be inhabitants of these growing suburban metro areas that are now the locus of democratic power and they're going to govern in a way that's oriented around their interests and that's going to continue to disincentivize any real recognition of the faults of how they comported themselves these past four years because for a lot of people the singular goal, the overriding monomaniacally obsessed with goal was simply to remove Trump Mm -hmm. and if they accomplish that goal then you know on their own terms why should they grapple with any of their failures right? (laughs)
1: On the elite neuroticism and the deranged hysteria that we saw frequently over the past four years, and not only in the US, in Europe as well, when Trump came to the UK, you know, we had one of the largest protests of recent years. People were waving placards with pictures of Trump with a Hitler moustache and loads of 1930s talk. I mean, really unhinged stuff. You've just given an indication there that you think that was partly driven by a desire to enforce conformism rather than to accurately describe this guy who had taken over the White House. But do you think there's also an element where that hysteria spoke to the level of threat that someone like Trump did pose to the elite consensus – So, you know, one of the things uh, I've always thought that the response to Trump was so completely and utterly out of proportion to what Trump actually represented and what he says and what he does. But it did strike me that it was proportionate only in a narrow sense that sections of the elite recognised that Trump was not only calling into question the right of Hillary Clinton to be president, but he was calling into question the way in which governance had been carried out for the past few decades. The role of expertise, certain foreign policy ideas, he grated against the deep state or whatever we want to call it. So do you think there was an element where the elite, which is often quite fractured and unconscious, became more aware of itself as being in danger once Trump came to power... And use some of those methods of hysteria to try to galvanize people against a threat to their own existence. Yeah, I think in order to answer that question,
2: you do have to dwell upon the ways in which Trump either was a radical departure from elite consensus or was not. Now, one way in which he most certainly was a radical departure from elite consensus was in his personal comportment, Mm. um, his (laughs) communication style. I mean, that's not breaking news, right? I mean, just glance at his Twitter feed on any given day, that's generally not how presidents of the past have carried themselves in public. And I think it's a little bit more complicated of an answer when it comes to his actual governing portfolio. Mm. Look, the Republicans had unified control of government for two years under Trump, and not every Republican was totally aligned with Trump's worldview, which was sort of inchoate to begin with. But what they did get accomplished was a large corporate tax cut and a failed attempt to repeal the affordable care act or obamacare. So none of those were really massively consensus upending initiatives, hmm. right? But but because Trump's ever presence in the waking lives of people who are professionally or culturally invested in American politics was so defined by his communication style that I think that created this irrational response to where his wider significance was exaggerated uh, beyond the threat that it did pose to elite consensus. Now, I think that 2016 could have provided a mandate for Trump to govern in, in a way that really was a radical departure. But you know, maybe because he didn't have enough I think it largely because he didn't have enough personnel in Washington who were willing to have fidelity to that kind of new mandate, that opportunity was largely uh, squandered. And also, Trump's opposition rendered impossible the kinds of cooperative exercises that might have been required to actually act upon some of those heterodox principles that he espoused in 2016, and which enabled him to win the election, because, and I think uh, an instructive way to think about this is look at how Trump campaigned against Hillary Clinton versus how he campaigned against Joe Biden. I wrote something for Unheard a month or so ago, which I, I went through the transcripts of the 2016 debates and the 2020 debates. In 2016, Trump never once accused Hillary Clinton of being some kind of radical leftist. He never really went after her with, ideologized attacks along the lines of what he did incessantly with Biden, mm. which was kind of less plausible. I mean, when you look at Joe Biden, he doesn't really mm. strike anybody as a radical leftist <laughs> or somebody who's like going to be empowering insurrectionist anarchists to take over federal agencies or something. Now there is an emboldenment I think on that, that was underway over the course of the Trump presidency among the, the fide radical left, but the way that was connected to Biden always strained credulity to some extent. Whereas with Hillary, it was almost indisputable that she actually was an emblem of a failed establishment, a failed elite consensus. And Trump accurately, for the most part, not always, pointed that out in 2016. I I don't think because he was so engrossed by Republican operators who had professional interests in D.C., dating back decades over the course of his four years in office, that then kind of infiltrated into his PR strategy vis-a-vis Biden. I don't think it was as... Successful or even as accurate mm. but nonetheless, if you look at the means by which Trump was opposed within the intelligence agencies, the security state apparatus, the media totally jettisoning all of its standards of even at least pretending to be impartial on certain things in their their coverage of Trump, the way in which nobody had any compunction about just declaring him to be a Nazi, a fascist, elevating these fringe players, like uh, the Proud Boys, or the alt-right before that fell out of fashion, and for some reason, they were off the radar in 2020, just, just notwithstanding in 2016, them supposedly being this kind of existential menace. I mean, they were forgotten, apparently. But all these th- all this slew of tactics that were used to delegitimize and undermine Trump, I think, was at its core, born of irrationality, because his antagonist couldn't distinguish between the ways in which his communication style his public persona his branding etc were a genuine departure and the ways in which his governing portfolio was really not that stark of a departure and and the the, the, the ultimate function of that was to enforce conformism within the, uh, the the segments of society where opposing trump and viewing him in these histrionic terms was a necessary prerequisite in order for you to have any kind of credence
1: yeah. within those circles. And that extended to the UK and other countries too. You know, opposing Trump was the the passport you needed to get into polite society. And can,
2: I, can I actually comment on a European angle now that
1: I'm thinking of it? So in, in 2018, Trump
2: attended the NATO summit in the summer, I think it was July of 2018. And he made a few scattered remarks about how you know, NATO member states needed to pay up, right? And what he said really wasn't that different from what Barack Obama had demanded, meaning he, he wanted a greater share of GDP dedicated to NATO among the member states because the burden sharing was disproportionately on um, the U.S. But if you look at, if you go back at the time, and thankfully I memorialized a lot of this because otherwise it's all going to get memory hold, believe me. Mm. It was as though Trump was calling for the abolition of NATO. Now we've gone through four years of Trump. What happened with NATO? It showed that it could withstand this superficial challenge that Trump posed just in terms of his rhetorical style, right? So NATO, I don't think, is jeopardized in terms of its long term viability and that that was really emphasized to an absurd degree in the u s by some of Trump's opponents within like the think tank realm, some of these national security types who need to generate a fear of the collapse of the U.S. hegemonic prowess by dint of Trump in order to solidify their own professional and cultural standing. Now, I think Trump is, was, in a way, what I've called a post-exceptionalist president. So I actually wrote about this for The Spectator for the first time in 2018, shortly after this NATO incident. Trump really doesn't pay homage To this dogmatic version of American exceptionalism that was just a standard cliche on a bipartisan basis predating him, so that is significant. But it really didn't translate into anything at all, really, in terms of you know the erosion of U.S. power the world over. So again, we get back to this neuroticism and paranoia. The U.S. is a declining hegemonic power it was never going to retain its status that it garnered after World War II. I mean, it's, it's a long-term process. What they did was they imbued Trump with this kind of cataclysmic significance, as though he was the reason for some kind of acceleration of the, the, the eroding process. And maybe in a way he was,
1: but not to the dramatized extent that they projected onto him. I want to ask you about... The role of the media. You mentioned the media earlier and their abandonment of even the pretense of objectivity and their use of language and terminology and hysterical claims about Trump that were completely non journalistic. I wanted to ask you how they recover from this, because if you look at the role that they've played over the past couple of months in particular, I'm thinking of the Hunter Biden story, which Silicon Valley essentially censured online, and lots of the media refused even to talk about it, never mind to investigate it and see if there was any truth to the claims that were published in the New York Post. And there are other examples too, where the media just very clearly ignored stories or claims that might have damaged the Biden camp, and of course, continued focusing obsessively on anything that was difficult for Trump. It strikes me that the media became very clearly, many people would argue that it's always been this, but the media became very clearly a wing of consensus opinion, a wing of the establishment. Is that what it's going to be now forever? Should we be worried about the inability of the media to hold a Biden administration to account. Can it recover from this? Or isn't, is not it now something completely different than it was in the past? It's difficult to
2: see how the genie can be put back in the bottle after these past four years, where the role of the media was just turned on its head. With the Hunter Biden story being just one of many examples, you know, the ironic thing about the Hunter Biden story was that I do think that the conservative media complex which tried aggressively to push that was not all that strategic you know when they could have just gotten trump to pull a Bolsonaro and maybe send out some more stimulus checks with his name written on them and that could have made the difference in arizona and georgia or something you know instead they were obsessing on like rudy giuliani's pet peeve about hunter biden Mm -hmm. which like wasn't that resonant that said the censorship which was marshalled to suppress that story was more significant than the story itself. yeah. And it showed that those segments of elite society, which were deeply psychologically invested in this world historic need to remove Trump, were willing to totally, again, upend the role that they previously played in terms of popular opinion. And it's ironic for me, personally, in a way, because when I first started in journalism, one of my big critiques was that traditional media institutions were unduly wedded to this notion of objectivity, which became stifling, which crowded out like dissenting opinion. And I still believe when I was first writing those articles and critiques you know, 10 years or so ago that it was accurate. But what happened was over the course of the Trump era, and I think fueled in a large part by social media, which makes every dropping of journalistic thought available for public consumption, it caused an overcorrection. It caused not just objectivity as a doctrine to be abandoned, which has some upsides. It caused impartiality as an aspiration to be abandoned Mm -hmm. because the overriding ideological objective was to topple Trump. It wasn't factual. And then we saw that in overdrive over the course of the Trump-Russia story, which in a lot of ways was the defining narrative of the entire presidency. We saw it with the riots and protests this past summer, which to this day, I still, to my knowledge, am the only journalist who at least attempted to go on a nationwide trip, talk to people who were affected by the aftermath of those riots, and distill it into some kind of intelligible reporting. And that's insane because these were the most widespread destructive riots in the United States in at least 50 years, maybe more, and just wasn't done in part because the need to defeat Trump was seen as supersessory and therefore it obviated any need to do any journalism, which in their minds they thought could benefit Trump, even though I don't think it particularly did. Like Minnesota, where Trump came remarkably close to winning in 2016 and where you had the most destructive riots is where they started in Minneapolis, that trended democratic pretty significantly, (laughs) including in the areas Mm -hmm. where the riots occurred. So I always thought it was sort of like a low information presupposition to think that just doing basic journalism and and analysis of the the consequences of these riots was necessarily going to redound to Trump's advantage. I don't think it particularly did, which shows, again, the irrationality of their refusal to cover it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I keep coming back to thematically. I mean, the tactics they employed to in their minds, disadvantaged Trump really didn't even accomplish what they thought they would accomplish. It was instead fundamentally a a conformity enforcing mechanism, because I can tell you from firsthand experience, if you said anything that departed from uh, the consensus as to the virtue of those, those protests, or even like asked reasonable questions about various aspects of them, you were in for a deluge of hatred within people who, if you're not like me, where you have sort of an independent platform, you're self-sustaining, it's just not worth taking that risk because you're not going to get a job. Yeah, You're not yeah. going to get your pitches accepted, et cetera. And I think, you know, with, with Trump out of the picture, at least in terms of him no longer being in office, maybe you'll see that dynamic at least recede somewhat, but it's never going to return to a pre-2016 baseline. I think 2016 was like an epistemic rupture that is going to have longer lasting consequences than we can presently conceive.
1: I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the riots, because as you said, you're probably the only journalist who did a nationwide tour of some of these places that were badly affected. And you've written about them quite a lot. And beyond the role of the media, although the media is intimately bound up with all of this stuff, I wanted to ask you about what those riots represented and also what you've just mentioned, which is the lack of coverage, the lack of focus, the lack of discussion. Because to an outsider this was extraordinary because even from outside the US, you got an indication that something incredibly serious was happening, incredibly destructive. Every now and then, usually by accident, you would happen upon an image of almost dystopian destruction in some American town. You'd you'd see it as you were scrolling through Instagram or something, and you would wonder why it wasn't on the BBC, why it wasn't being talked about more widely in the press here or in in the US. Just on, on the question of what those riots Represented. So you have suggested that they were almost elite backed or elite endorsed disturbances, as reflected in the fact that there was so little pushback against them from sections of the elite and a large amount of apologism for them. You know, we had a situation where looting was seen as some kind of wonderful political act, and violent protests were described. As peaceful protests. And as you say, anyone who criticized this behavior was pounced upon in a pretty vicious way.
2: Think of how it started. There was a police precinct building in
1: Minneapolis
2: that was besieged. The Democratic mayor of Minneapolis ordered the police to retreat from a building that was then seized and lit on fire. (laughs) Okay? That happened. And the contrary way to think about it is, Imagine if the people who besieged a police building were seen as in some way right wing or seen as yeah. Trump supporters. It would have been a nationwide hysterical meltdown, and probably rightly so. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic act. And yet, because of the political incentives that were operative at the time, to me, what was so flustering was that just the, the true nature of it was obscured. Like, I don't even care if you support it. Okay, fine. But at least be honest in your depictions of it. You know, I would go around to these both big cities and small towns, which underwent the most severe rioting that anybody there could ever remember happening. Some of which, even I, as somebody who's very attuned to the news in the United States, wouldn't have known occurred unless I was personally there. Let's just name one random example, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Not a huge city, predominantly white, yet you would walk around downtown and talk to owners of like tobacco shops and a post office op- and postal office workers who were like, "Yeah, we were rioted." It's just like, okay, so where is the coverage of this? And it was just so bizarre. The gulf between what I was observing personally and what I was hearing from people who experienced it directly and the national media narratives was probably greater than anything I have experienced. And you know, I, I'm not that old, but uh, you know, I've been around for you know. Trump-Russia, the 2016 election. I, I, even, I even have memories of the Iraq war still. And, and to me, it was incredibly jarring. So you have, to, you have to think to yourself, okay, so why is this? Because just from a pure journalistic standpoint, if I had told you – so take Trump out of the equation for a second. If I had told you that the U.S. just went over the most serious riotous convulsion that it had in at least 50 years, you would probably think to yourself, hmm, maybe we should deploy some journalists to go gather data about that. Maybe we should commission some esteemed magazine writer to do like a 10,000 word story on the riots of 2020, just so we have something on the historical record as to what it all meant. And yet there's just been nothing. Mm -hmm. Like I went to Chicago over the course of that trip and I would drive around, you know, almost entirely black sections of the South side of Chicago and the West side of Chicago talking to people. And it's just... Business after business after business after business boarded up, and to me, to neglect to conduct just basic analysis of that was almost an insult to the local population. I would, be, I would be talking to black residents, older black residents, who you know are not pro-Trump. I mean, they almost entirely voted for Biden, but even they seem to take offense to the lack of attention that was given to their situation. So, like, because the the people who are responsible. For crafting elite opinion making consensus in the US, we were so just psychically wedded to this undying need to defeat Trump. It had all kinds of downstream irrational consequences, such as doing something which was pretty offensive to the people who were directly impacted. And it wasn't just the predominantly black areas either. That's what was so interesting. It was a largely white movement. Mm. You would go to Minneapolis in neighborhoods that have a lot of uh, somali migrants and you know one of the, you could still go you know if my, if you want to see it my, to my youtube channel where i talked to this guy who lives in like sort of an apartment building and was talking about how on you know the night, night two or three of the riots you had white people rushing into the neighborhood setting stuff on fire and threatening to burn down his apartment building where there were somali children scared out of their wits that they were going to die in their sleep and so you know where is the coverage of that? I mean, the the human mm-hmm. interest side of that is just so abundantly obvious that it would obviously be covered if it weren't for these overriding political considerations that dictated so much of how the media has operated, not just during that summer, which is maybe the most
1: egregious example of it, but since Trump arrived on the national scene. I want to ask you about another element of Trump derangement syndrome, or or however we want to refer to it. But the fallout from this election is incredibly interesting, because what you have is a situation where Trump and some of his supporters are essentially behaving like remainers in the UK in terms of refusing to accept the election result and pushing back in various legal ways, although it all seems to be increasingly deflating and running out of steam very quickly which makes it different to remainers in the UK who kept up their anti-democratic pushback for four years but what's really striking about that i mean on one level it's it was fairly predictable that trump would do that that he would tweet i won the election and all these kinds of things you know you don't need a crystal ball to know that trump would probably have done things like that but what's remarkable among British leftists and American leftists is this shock horror that someone would dare to call into question the legitimacy of an election result, considering that in the US you had Gate, impeachment, various other mechanisms that were largely designed to undermine the election result of 2016. And in the UK, we had an even more egregious example of this, where we had court cases, street protests, and parliamentary intrigue, all of which was expressly designed to undermine the vote for Brexit of 2016. How is it possible people can behave with such double standards and not even realise that they're doing it? Is that how far down the rabbit hole of hysteria they've gone. Well,
0: because
2: the delegitimization of the 2016 election was validated by all these elite influence makers and what gets them really angry. And actually Trump randomly retweeted me saying this a few days ago, which (laughs) leads me to believe that his plans for carrying out some kind of fascist coup are not going well if he has time to sit around (laughs) scanning his feed for, for my latest insights. But what I said, which drove them crazy, but I think is unassailably true, is that in 2016, the rejection of the election results were tantamount to assertions of election fraud. I mean, what they said was, and they used this because of claims laundered through the media that originated from the uh, intelligence apparatus, which interfered in domestic U.S. politics to an unprecedented degree. I mean, this is why the left-wing apathy toward Russiagate was so damning. It's because if you, again, remove Trump from the equation, the degree to which the CIA, the FBI, the NSA Mm. asserted themselves within domestic U.S. political affairs was frightening. But it happened to be at the disadvantage of Trump, so it was all swept under the rug. But, you know, you could easily imagine it happening to some kind of left-wing insurgent at some later date. And I, I made that point frequently when I saw people like Bernie Sanders Providing quote unquote progressive cover to the rationalizations for why these security state machinations against a democratically elected president were justified. But they don't believe that the the way they treated the 2016 election was in any way equivalent to how Trump is not treating the aftermath of the 2020 election. And to be clear, they're not perfectly equivalent. Hillary Clinton did, for all her faults, concede the election the day after. Now she has some of her operatives, like John Podesta and Jennifer Palmieri and others, toy with the idea of mounting some kind of electoral college coup, which at the time was unheard of in US presidential election history. I mean, the idea that you could call on electors, which before then had just been a formality to subvert the popular vote outcomes in their respective states and decide to choose somebody else was almost, again, it was was so obscure a notion that it was Not even something that was ever seriously entertained. And that damn broke. And to me, it was inevitable that you were going to see a replication of that in some form or another after 2020. And this idea that we're now going to have this stubborn denialism as to what the nature of the 2016 election delegitimization was, it just shows that, again, there's going to be a total inability to reconcile with the the sweeping nature of the Trump era and what it portended. Because, you know, I could have told you as somebody who is somewhat in tune with conservative media sentiment, that there was a zero chance Mm -hmm. that they were going to be mute in terms of alleging fraud, if only out of sheer retribution for what was done in 2016. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Remember, they impeached Trump. And this was, again, largely ignored. Partially, I mean, the, the, the pretext of it was this Ukraine phone call. Right, which people only remember the details of because it was so insignificant. But they included in the impeachment articles references to this whole 2016 election interference concept and the idea that Trump was illegitimately stalled into office by a hostile foreign power. I mean, that was now that's now embedded in the fabric of U.S. governance because it was included in only the third time that a president was ever impeached uh, in 250-plus years. And if you don't think that's going to leave a mark, And it just shows how lacking in foresight so many of the anti-Trump factions are. What they did allege was election fraud. I mean, I can show you articles where you had computer scientists gathering together and trying to analyze, you know, county data in the Midwest and suggesting that that meant that the voting machines may, I mean, they're maybe a little bit more tactful than some of the Trump Mm. supporters are, but like (laughs) the, the clear design of what they were doing was to sow doubt as to the legitimacy of that Election And it continued well into his term. The phrase, hack the election, entered popular parlance. And I don't think the point of that was to generate confidence in the outcome. It was to show that Trump was an illegitimate president. And maybe now, whenever there's an election that's reasonably close, the opposition is just going to outright reject its legitimacy. Yeah. Super majorities of democratic voters not didn't believe just that Russia quote, interfered, and the term interference was always said so nebulous as to be meaningless, but they believed that Trump won only because Russia hacked the voting system, so they illegitimately installed him into power, and they got that perception not just out of some organic process but because of the media obsession on engendering that impression. so I always thought that the best analog to remain and the way that they tried to undermine the, the Brexit vote was really how the the liberal elites tried in their own way to undermine the 2016 vote. Now I think we're, we've entered a new phase of this process in terms of what the Trump supporters are doing. And if Trump were more competent, his legal strategy is pretty much a sham. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, the courts are <laughs> laughing everything off the docket and none of it's going anywhere. I mean, they're using these bizarre theories about how the different ways in which votes were counted in Pennsylvania like violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. I mean, very little of it makes sense, which again underscores the stupidity of these kind of dictatorial powers that were supposedly assigned to Trump. Would he be impotently flailing around like this if he actually had a good grasp on how to retain power? Don't you think if, there were, if Trump was like a legitimate fascist, maybe he would have had a little bit of a better strategy to capitalize on the most widespread riots in at least 50 years to like solidify <laughs> his control on the apparatus of state? Well, I mean he didn't do it, so maybe that should cause you to revisit some of your assumptions about Trump, but of course it won't, it'll all get memory hold. I can guarantee you that
1: I want to ask you about the role of the left in relation to Russia Gate and in relation to the general anti-Trump hysteria, because it strikes me that it's relatively predictable that the liberal elites and the centrist elites would have behaved rashly in response to the victory of someone like Trump. I mean, I think they went far more crazy than we were expecting, but it's understandable that they would behave in a pretty strange way to something like that. It was also predictable that the liberal elites and the centrist elites in the UK would be incredibly hostile to the vote for Brexit because, They are intimately aligned with the European Union and with the idea of global governance and all those kinds of things. But what I think has happened in both the US and the UK in various different ways is that the left or the progressives, or however we want to refer to them, have made, in my view, one of the most catastrophic decisions of their existences. Because what they have done over the past four years is aligned themselves pretty closely with this behaviour. So in the UK, for example, you had Momentum, which is the radical left movement around Corbyn, caving into the idea of holding a second referendum on the EU, which would have meant voiding 17.4 million votes, which includes 8 million votes made by women, includes millions of votes made by working class people. A real catastrophic error on their part, an, an abandonment of democracy and an abandonment of working class people, and in the US, you had a situation where the left was essentially aligning itself with anti Russia conspiracy theories and with a kind of neo McCarthyism and this idea that America had been corrupted and co opted by Putin and Moscow. And they also aligned themselves with the various other forms of anti Trump hysteria, too. So, a bit of a double barreled question Why did the left do that? And Is this the end of the left? When you do something like that, when you behave in a way that is so contradictory to democracy and reason, can you come back from that?
2: Well, I mean, the self-defeating nature of the left-wing tack over the course of the Trump years is made especially evident by the outcome of the Democratic primary race in 2020. You know, because of COVID, the recriminations that would normally accompany an outcome like what befell the Bernie Sanders campaign would have been, I think, pretty stark, Absent COVID, they would have been more stark than they were. COVID then dominated everything Mm. and the meaning of the Bernie Sanders loss was not fully grappled with. But that was a five-year, maybe once-in-a-generation or once-in-a-lifetime gambit to solidify left-wing political power in the United States and potentially even win a presidential election. Now, I'm not sure how strong a candidate Bernie would have been against Trump under these circumstances and Maybe in this bizarre, ironic way, Biden was the ideal candidate, which few people would have prognosticated uh, going back six or 12 months. But the the failure of that endeavor shows to me, and I, I wrote about this sort of at the time for American affairs in an article with uh, Angela Nagel, but there was this fusionism between elements of the American left and center left who at least claim to have this acrimonious posture toward one another, but end up always collaborating on the same goals, which was to fashion this idea of Trump being a catastrophic fascist intruder. And if you profess that, then it was rational for the democratic primary voters who overwhelmingly voted for Biden to not think that it was a worthwhile risk to expand the range of political possibility by throwing in with in with a Bernie Sanders or with somebody else who, yes, was a Democrat, but would have been a significant divergence from how the Democratic Party had previously done business. If you look at the left-wing online commentariat, eventually there did develop a certain skepticism of like liberal paranoia vis-a-vis the Russia issue or maybe even vis-a-vis impeachment, but it always came like a year and a half too late. Yeah, Like in 2017, it was a unified front when the Mueller investigation was first launched. Then when impeachment came around, it was a unified front, meaning you had everybody across the left-wing spectrum, Bernie Sanders, The Nation magazine, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Everybody was in lockstep about the need to impeach Trump on these grounds that really entrenched the primacy of the American security state over U.S. domestic political affairs, which is a theme that I have to keep going back to as we think about the left failures over the course of these past four years. The strategy, I think, was incredibly self-defeating. But then again, if you attempted to dispel some of the more hysterical depictions of Trump as a fascist leader, then I can also tell you from personal experience that it inevitably invited accusations that you were pro-Trump, that you were anti-anti-Trump, that's a term I'm well acquainted with, that you were not on board with this historic mission of the, quote, resistance. I mean, they borrowed that from occupied France, okay? And it was just accepted. Very few people called into question the salability of that messaging strategy because every incentive aligned with endorsing the most aggressively exaggerated version of Trump, from social media algorithms to the clicks that you could enjoy on your website, the podcast subscriptions, the TV ratings, the book sales, it all militated in one direction. So if you militated in another direction, you were incurring a lot of risk that for social reasons and cultural reasons and political reasons, so many of the people who at least claim to be these left wing oracles of wisdom were not willing to take, and is the left over? No, I don't think it's over. But it's clearly clearly their strategy over the course of these four years caused a self marginalization, where they don't have a whole lot of leverage with Joe Biden. I mean, they fabricated a rape claim against Joe Biden, and I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not a believe all women person. I've never never was. So, but I mean, they pulled out all the stops to defeat Joe Biden. Yeah. He still bulldozed Bernie. <laughs> And now he won the presidency by flipping Georgia and Arizona I mean, with the most votes ever in U.S. history. So who the hell in their right mind would look to the left right now for any kind of viable political insights? I mean, they're,
1: they're less relevant than I can recall them being. So on Bernie Sanders, I, I have to ask you about Bernie because in relation to the piece you wrote about him with Angela Nagel, which was very good, you make a really interesting point, which is – the contradiction between the growth of the Bernie movement and the excitement around Bernie among progressives and among left-wing activists and online activists between 2016 and 2020, but then at the same time, his candle burns out and his connection with people and his popularity among voters wanes at the same time. And there's a similar process in the UK, actually, where the movement around Jeremy Corbyn was always, you know, fairly successful, very lively, lots of largely middle class kids. Middle class in Britain means upper middle class in the US, who bandied around Corbyn. The membership of the Labour Party shot through the roof. It was historically high. It was the largest party in Europe, as Corbynites would frequently remind me. But at the same time, in those years, the Labour Party lost working-class voters to a catastrophic degree, so that in the general election of 2019, Labour got its worst election results since the 1930s. And famously, vast, vast swathes of working-class Britain voted for the Tories, which they don't normally do. And I think the explanation for those things, although there will be many differences, are quite similar, which is that what you had was a situation where woke activists, activists with fairly eccentric ideologies, activists with points of view and obsessions that don't really marry up with the concerns of working-class voters, they kind of took over those movements and took over those campaigns and drove a wedge between the representatives of the left and ordinary voters. Is that how you see the Bernie Sanders campaign having fizzled out. Do you think it's it's primarily down to the kind of people who got over excited about Bernie and in the process kind of ruined his prospects with the American people?
2: In that piece with Angela Nagel, I delve into the result of the Michigan primary, which happened before COVID blew up, so it's it was instructive as to kind of deciphering some of these trends. And the whole Promise of the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 was that he would be able to fuse a left-wing political program with resonance among these quintessentially de-industrialized voters in the Rust Belt, you know, almost like the caricature of the Brexit voter uh, in a U.S. context because he flouted establishment expectations and could directly reach them. And then you had – The Michigan primary roll around and Michigan obviously had that size importance because it voted for Trump in twenty sixteen after having been a longstanding Democratic stronghold. And what happened? Bernie lost every county in Michigan to Joe Biden, who we were told was again just a walking corpse who offered nothing except a reinstitution of the Democratic Party to power. Well, again, I get come back to this idea of Democratic primary voters, if they take seriously what's being fed to them by the left-wing media and also by the liberal left media, of which there wasn't a whole lot of difference, then it was perfectly logical for them to say, we need a unified front. We don't need any ideological risk-taking at this point. In fact, the range of political possibility that momentarily seemed on offer in 2016 has constricted, and therefore it's incumbent on us to be safe. And that's why they chose Joe Biden. And what gave some of them perhaps the impression that Bernie was less safe than he was in 2016? Well, it was obviously the specter of Trump, but it was also because there was a burning movement that had developed between 2016 and 2020, which did a lot of sloganeering. It emphasized a lot of pet causes that they would often claim using kind of fallacious readings of polling data were popularly accepted in the overall electorate, but most of the time were not like abolish ICE, for example, defund the police came after the Bernie campaign ended, but it was a similar example of that in that it was kind of inculcated by these left-wing activist types who tended to think that they were on the cutting edge of political insight, but really were pretty marginal players. And so because Bernie was sort of wedded to this new left that had come about, which I don't think it was exclusive about identitarian issues, but it was clear that if Bernie flouted any of these identitarian precepts that had been burnished over the course of the kind of interregnum period between his first campaign and the second, then he was in for a big controversy. And even him going on uh, Joe Rogan, ended up being controversial because it didn't matter apparently that the most popular podcast host in the world supported him. It was that they could go find clips of Joe Rogan in like 2012 saying something slightly untoward about gender identity issues. Yeah. So that mindset was so predominant within the Bernie staff, the Bernie supporting media apparatus, which really kind of matured over the course of four years and was a was a big player. I think there's a similar analog there with, with Corbin, perhaps But really, it became more of a a, that force became more of an anchor on him than it was a a bolster to him. You see that by how his support dwindled. One trend, it was that in 2016, Bernie won uh, primary states like West Virginia, Oklahoma, uh, Indiana, and it was just impossible for him to have won states like that in 2020. And what was the variable that changed those dynamics. It was, I think, the ascendance of this left-wing activist core that had asserted their priorities over the Bernie campaign and made it a different animal than it had been in 2016. And what they don't recognize and still won't, even after this repudiation of most of their analysis, is that it's just not as popular in the electorate as they had primed themselves to believe. Bernie had some unique attributes in 2016 that ended up going by the wayside because of how in hockey was to this self-satisfied cultural milieu that had latched onto him and thought that they were actually onto something. But really, all they were doing is was becoming a prong of left liberal consensus in order to dis- dislodge Trump. And in that way, they were useful idiots. I'm often of called a useful idiot because of my supposedly <laughs> – being uh, secretly pro-Trump or pro-Russia or whatever, but you know the left wingers who position themselves as these grave critics of of liberal democratic consensus, they end up doing more to fortify that consensus than pretty much
1: anybody. My final question is about the next four years in the U.S. and just your predictions of how it might pan out predictions are a dangerous game but we'll see predictions are very dangerous so just your general view perhaps of where we're at but it strikes me that you know the establishment has won essentially and they've got back into power which is what they wanted but i think they are incredibly bruised and shaken and lacking in confidence and i think that will become apparent in my view pretty quickly in terms of the crisis of legitimacy that still affects these people. And Trump was merely a pretty visceral manifestation of that crisis. Do you think the excitement that Biden defeated Trump is going to be short-lived? Do you think America is going to head into even more choppy waters than it has been in previously? How do you see the next four years generally, without making any hardcore predictions, what do you think will be the tone of America for the next four years?
2: Well, I think the tone of America over the previous four years was to, again, in a rational extent, dictated by Trump's own personal stylings. And that may carry over to some degree with Biden. And I do think Biden actually is of a mind to have a genuine belief in Seemingly antiquated notions of, like, bipartisan comity, of reaching across the aisle, all these cliches. I mean, I think that actually is who he is. He was a creature of the U.S. Senate for 35 years, where he would always make a show about how well he got along with Republicans. I mean, Cindy McCain rose from the ashes to become one of the main endorsers of Biden. And, you know, ironically, for those of us who were scornful of, like, the Never Trump faction of elite conservatives. I mean, it may have actually been pivotal in Arizona, where Cindy McCain does wield some influence. So that's something I'm going to have to personally think about a little more. (laughs) And so I think there's going to be a few dynamics at play here. I think Biden is going to, on his own terms, do what he can, according to his own kind of like 50-year-old ideological presuppositions to foster unity or something whereas, you know, Trump really never even tried to do that, which was sort of new for an American president. So Biden's going to try to revert back to that, quote, norm. But clearly, there are going to be other moving pieces in the American political landscape that aren't going to be at all interested in that, some of which are going to include the huge cross sections of Republican voters and Trump voters who just outright deny the legitimacy of the election to a degree that maybe even goes a little bit beyond what the the liberals and the Democrats did in 2020. I mean, because the liberals and the Democrats occupy these mainstream precincts of elite opinion, they have to be a little bit more hedging. They have to be a little bit more accommodating. They can't just outright scream fraud constantly, although some of them did in 2016. But like within the conservative media apparatus, it's just like there's all bets are off in terms of what they can allege. And so if you don't even operate from a shared belief as to the legitimacy of an election, it's hard to see how you progress from that starting point. Like you're going to just, I don't know, have some negotiations about an infrastructure bill or something. (laughs) And so a lot of it weirdly will depend on Biden's own personal ability to bring about some kind of moving on from all this mania and fissures. And I just don't know if it's really in his capacity to do so as good of a faith belief he might have in the need to do so. And because so many of the excesses of the Trump era in terms of the media, in terms of the security state apparatus, in terms of the think tank world and all these other factions, which propped up what at bottom is a false belief as to what Trump represented. I think the irrationality of that can't just be rescinded. You know, it's got to carry over into how new political developments are Frames going forward. I mean, I, th- I think you're going to see a push among some liberal left types to enact authoritarian policies to prevent any kind of resurgence of what they call Trumpism, given what an existential threat it supposedly was. So that could include more censorship, include more surveillance. I mean, clearly they have no, they're not bashful at all about using the security state mechanisms to pursue their ends. And That, I think, seems to be the mindset of Kamala Harris, who Mm -hmm. probably is going to be a very influential vice president. I mean, there are even many theories you can find on the internet of her really being the true president, which I don't think is exactly true. But nonetheless, I mean, she's going to have a wide portfolio. And so, yeah, predictions, as I mentioned before, are are a dicey game. But if voters who thought that Biden was just going to bring about a reversion to the pre-Trump status quo... I think they're going to probably be in for a sorry surprise. Michael Tracy, thank you very much. All right. Thank you.